Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Michael Carlino. Michael, how are you? Doing well. How are you doing, Josh? Very good. Glad to have you here. And I met you through our mutual friend, Jonathan Hardesty, who, as of this date, we've recorded five conversations. We're about to record our sixth. So he and I are having a great time. I contacted him originally because of his art and how he posted his, his transition from starting with no experience as a fine artist in any way at all in his mid-20s, I think, mm-hmm. and then became an artist. And most people would think, I thought you had to do that when you're a kid. And if you didn't have the gift, whatever, you're finished. Yeah. He's also a Christian in Texas. This is a very American political conservatives and uh, evangelicals and Christians are very influential group in the United States. Everyone knows this, mm-hmm. especially in the area of the environment. And that meant that that's a group that I want to work with and get to know. It's a group that's been mostly out of my life mm-hmm. and I've known about, but I haven't known actual people face to face. And so he put me in touch with you. And all right, so, so people know you are a PhD candidate at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so I'm going to read a bit from Wikipedia here. Yeah, okay. The Southern Baptist uh, Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, it's one of the oldest of the six seminaries affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. It was founded in 1859 in South Carolina. After being closed during the Civil War, da, 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 it's moved to its current location in 1926. Uh, for more than 50 years, Southern has been one of the world's largest theological seminaries with a full-time equivalent enrollment of over 3,300 students in 2015. So it's a pretty big place. Yes, very big. You are a PhD candidate there, mm-hmm. and there's a whole lot to learn about you. And I hope you don't mind if we, if we start by learning about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm kind of curious how you decided to become a PhD candidate and also I asked you just before, and could you repeat, I asked you, do you call yourself conservative, uh, Christian? Do you call yourself evangelical? How would you describe yourself? Yeah, I would kind of break down into three three separate labels. And I think I mentioned this to you. Sometimes labels aren't the most helpful because we're, you know, we want to, there is nuance and freedom to, to not be like strapped down by a label. But I would say, broadly speaking, I, I am Protestant, which means uh, Protestant goes back to those who protested the Catholic Church back in the 15th century, kind of started with Martin Luther, for those who are familiar with uh, kind of church history, and then it comes from there. So Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and myself and the Southern Baptist uh, denomination flows from that stream of Protestantism, meaning we're not Catholic, we are Protestant. And then evangelical refers to the fact that we hold to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who came, died for sins, and all who believe in him are forgiven of their sins. Like that's evangelical in a nutshell. We proclaim the gospel. We hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then conservative, both I would say is both a theological and uh, politically appropriate label for me in the sense that when I read the text, I hold to conservative values related to the scripture, and I'm looking to conserve the text uh, that has been given to us and hold to that, uh, meaning I don't take a lot of liberal or progressive turns with the text uh, of scripture. And I'm the same uh, politically. I would be broadly uh, conservative, but my conservatism goes back to, in history, to men like Edmund Burke and others who were about the time of the American Revolution, that not like the GOP of today. That's, that's a different, that's not conservatism. So, so yeah, so I, just to be clear, I think some people here are conservative and we have this very polarized mindset. I'm, I'm not wearing my red hat and marching around or anything like that. So, so yeah. Can you give some examples of, of what are some conservative beliefs that you hold in Christianity and in politics? Yeah, so more and more, uh, some of the conversations that are happening in Christianity, if, you're, if you were to take a liberal versus conservative argument, so for example, a more progressive argument related to, let's say, 
the work of the Lord Jesus Christ would be that Jesus came to the earth to stand in solidarity with oppressed people. A lot of this would be coming through more of a progressive ideology that's rooted in whether it be critical theory, critical race theory, feminism, a lot of those various strands. And they're going to seek to locate the work of Christ in in their historical understanding of how the world works. Whereas uh, more of a conservative bent is going to be wanting to read it through the lens of the apostles, the men who wrote the text and then build from there. It's more of an authorial intent. So if you're familiar with like understanding the, the American constitution, even conservatives tend to want to understand what the author's intent was, not what we can do with what the words were. So that's a, a major difference with conservatives. And so, for example, then with the text of scripture, when I when when I study and think on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't see as much him coming to stand in solidarity as much as he comes to do away with our sin. He comes to, uh, in the text of scripture, it talks about die for the sins of the world. So to, to pay the penalty for our sins, to give us forgiveness. So, so those realities on a theological basis related to the gospel come into play that I would want to say strongly that Jesus died so that I could be forgiven. My, my problem is not that I was oppressed, but that I, I'm sinful and I need to, and I need his grace and forgiveness and his uh, death on the cross to bring me into reconciliation with the Father is what we would believe. So, so that's a conservative uh, principle up front of the gospel. Related to to kind of move and then tie that in, though, related to discussions and move us towards, since you're wanting to discuss sustainability and other things, what I would say is a conservative understanding of creation is important in that. So we see God creates the world in Genesis 1. As a conservative, we would say God creates the world. He says that it's good. And then he tells Adam and Eve to be stewards of that meaning. He tells them to be fruitful and take dominion to subdue the earth and uh, to go out and to be fruitful and multiply, meaning they're to have children who have children, they're to spread across the world, and they're to take the resources that God has created. This includes plants, trees, animals at this point, and to subdue it, meaning they're to utilize it for the growth of humanity, and that that both glorifies God and is good for humans then. Uh, So then when we get into these, when, when we talk about a conservative understanding then, my concern is when I talk to progressive friends, both Christian and non-Christian on this, is that the the difference between a conservative and a more progressive person would be that they would see that we are almost serving the world, that the world is bigger than us, and that our job is to ensure that the world continues. Whereas in the Bible, we're taught that God has created the world, he is over the world, and he has actually put man over the world to take dominion and to guard it. And dominion is a strong word that in our day, I think is wrongly tied in with domineering or taking advantage of or exploiting. And we don't want to say that. That's a different, that that would be a wrong way to treat the world. But a big difference in when I see some of the broader conversations on these topics is that Many seem to think that the world has very limited resources and that it is our job to serve the world in such a way where we're pulling back. Whereas from Genesis 1 and onward, the Bible is saying that the world is made and to be teeming with life and there's resources and wealth there that we can utilize. And that as we utilize those resources, more resources come about through our uh, through our using it wisely and resourcefully. So I, I think one of the big distinctions then in conservation is um, not putting ourselves under the world, but utilizing the world in the way that God would have us. So that would be, a ma- I think, a major distinction in, in a lot of the conversations I have with more uh, progressive friends. So I want to get into that interface, but I want to take a step back and 
your views are very well considered. I mean, you, it sounds like you've reflected a lot on these, these things you've analyzed. You've probably taken different positions at different times. Yeah. I think now someone who's a PhD candidate, that's not a light decision. That means you've considered a lot of things. Yeah. I also know a whole lot of people who are just like, you know, I do what my parents did. They went to church or they went to synagogue and, and they haven't really thought too much about it. Mm-hmm. And did you go through a stage of, I mean, were you always well considered? Did you think about it and say, I'm, I'm really going to go into this and change? Or how, what was your journey like, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, no, I'm more than happy to talk about that. So I was raised by a Christian mother uh, who was very faithful. And I was homeschooled the first couple of years of my life. And my education and my faith were intertwined in such a way where I couldn't see, see a difference. Like faith and the way the world works were intimately tied together. There was some wrestling through that in my teenage years. Specifically, it was not as much questions I had about the text of Scripture or the faith in general. It was similar to what a lot of people struggle with in the faith in that I went, my, my parents divorced when I was 11. And I'm the oldest in a family of five. So that left my, my mother and us five kids in a, in a very precarious spot. We had to move away from the home we loved and resettle. And uh, it was a very difficult couple of years there. I wasn't able to be homeschooled, which I loved because of the freedom. It, it enabled me to study things on my own and, um, and things like that. And going to school, I didn't necessarily love public school, things like that. So going through difficulty kind of forced me to think through whether, you know, bigger scale questions of the problem of evil why is it that, you know, I, you know, as a, as a kid at that point, I didn't do anything wrong to have my dad leave. So why is it that this is happening to me? How does that make me think through the, the character of the God that I read in the Bible? Most people I meet don't have deep textual questions about the Bible when they, when they don't like the God of the Bible. They have more of a moral repulsion. They have an idea that if God is so good, why do kids die of cancer? If God is so good, why do seemingly such horrible things happen to good people? Why, why is it that evil seems to be disproportionately affecting people? How is that fair? So, so there's, those are the questions I think most people would struggle with more so. And I, and I went through that in my, my, my teenage years. So in that journey, so to speak, as going through that, what I came to realize was the way that the, the Bible actually deals with those things very explicitly. So there are stories in the Bible, for example, of uh, there's a man named Joseph in the book of Genesis who is sold by his brothers into slavery, is imprisoned falsely um, on accusations. And uh, one day he ha- has the opportunity to rise to power and he is uh, brought face to face again with the brothers who sold him into slavery. And he's given, and so he's standing in this opportunity to take vengeance against his brothers. And instead of doing so, he tells them that. God has used what they intended for evil for good so that he would be in that position to give them what they needed and to bless other people from his, his position of leadership. And that viewpoint's pretty radical to have this idea that, that God would actually, through evil intentions of other people, bring about good things. That goes counterintuitive to our, to our day and our age. Uh, and so those kind of things solidified for me a trust in God, seeing that God has great purposes, even in and through evil. I once heard the analogy. It's like, um, it's like a parent who has a sharp knife in their hand and they tell their child, you can't play with this knife. You will hurt yourself. This is not okay for you. And yet the parent would be using that sharp knife 
and cutting food or things like that at, at the home. In a similar way, God is transcendent and above us, and his purposes in and through through how evil work in this world are above our understanding. And um, and though he is not to be blameless in, he can use it. He can actually, through his purposes, see evil come together for good and blessing for other people. As I mentioned, the story of Joseph able to bless other people, or even in the story of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is killed by lawless men, that is what brings about our salvation, ultimately, as Christians, we believe. So so those things are huge for me as a Christian in terms of thinking through tougher questions in life. And then to, to answer a very specific thing you mentioned, you mentioned how I was raised in the faith. And I think that a lot of people, and I, I want I would push back on a lot of my more agnostic or atheistic friends on this, is that they often assume in conversations I have with them that because I was raised in a Christian home and they weren't, that my faith is a product of nurture and that they somehow have a more objective view because they were not raised in that. And I would simply say, no, you were nurtured to not believe. I was nurtured to believe. I don't see it as though you're now more open-minded. You were almost catechized or trained to not believe in the God of that I, that I believe in while I was. So none of us are unbiased or neutral on how we think through matters related to the faith. And so the way that I look at it and, and, my, and how I converse with people, uh, even, even like you and I, when I have these conversations, I don't come into it as though faith is merely a product of my, my parents. I believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I believe that every word of the Bible is true, not because not just because my my mother told me so, though that is part of it. I was raised in that stream of thought, but because it is true, objectively for everyone, I'm convinced. And so, and just being raised in that doesn't take away that 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 assurance that I that I have. So I think that I try to press back on that because I think that's a very common misconception in our day related to faith. Is well, faith if you're raised in it, you were kind of jaded, you're biased, but not being raised in it puts you in this like neutral objective position to be able to think through it. And I just, I don't buy that because those who disbelieve are operating on just as much of a, a worldview and a, and I would almost argue a religious bias as anybody. Like, for example, let's talk about, you know, if you, to transition to more sustainability things. If your thought is that the world has limited resources and what we need to be doing right now is protecting and, and saving from future collapse of resources, that is a guiding principle that you are accepting in many ways by faith, because a lot of it we can't be 100% sure. We can study some of the basic science, we can see trajectories, but much of this we are is, is a faith commitment where we're saying, this is a principle that I believe in, and I'm going to shape my life on the basis of it. So that's not a neutral thing, that's, that is buying into a, a principle or a belief system. So. On what you're just saying there, I talk to a lot of people who, when I ask them, if I talk to a lot of very sciencey people, very uh, engineer geeky types, of which I'm often one, I can certainly turn it on when I want. Like they'll often point to, like they they want efficiency, they want things to be more efficient. Now, from a systemic perspective, you can make an element of a system more efficient, but if that system is very polluting, you can make this one part pollute less, while you actually make the entire system pollute more. That is, if you make a polluting system more efficient, you will create more pollution more efficiently, which is describes our world pretty well with very little effort. You know, I can swipe my phone and someone will drive a 2,000-pound vehicle 
and food that's been packaged in something that will last for hundreds of years. And all I did was swipe my finger. Yep. Well, actually I cook at home, <laughs> but other people do that. And when I asked them, like they're putting efficiency as their, as their top goal. Mm-hmm. And they haven't, it seems to me they haven't questioned it that much because yeah. to me it's, I mean, the output of the system, it's how it affects people as part of nature is more like, that's where I try to, I mean, as a, a physics training tends, we tend to go for what's at the root of things. What's like, what's at the, at the base that's driving all this. And also from a leadership perspective, it tends to be our values. And I think people don't really think about it. And I can see why people would think I'm using logic and science and math. And therefore this stuff is perfectly logical, scientific, and rational. And the way I usually think of it is Euclid created what we now call Euclidean geometry. Mm-hmm. And he started with five assertions, five things, and he derived everything else from that or built everything from that. But those five things, he had to start with those. Those are his axioms. And you can't prove them from something else. And you can use math to get from, you can use math and logic and so forth to get from one belief to more, but you can't, you have to start from something that's outside of those things. I don't think people think about that. Yeah, I think one of the things that I try to challenge people to think on related to these questions is you get to a point where every single person in the world has to make a circular argument, meaning you have to make an argument that its ultimate source and uh, validity is rooted in itself, because that has to happen. Because otherwise, if something else is underneath that, and then it's not that principle that that is actually at bottom. And so when it comes to like the things of God or if someone were to ask me genuinely, like, well, what is the ultimate proof that you have to believe in the Bible or to believe in the God that is revealed in the Bible? The ultimate proof for that is the God of the Bible and the Bible itself. Like, and, and so people go, ha, you know, aha moment. That's a circular argument. But when I start pressing back on their basic belief system, there becomes a point where when you strip back all the layers and all the pretenses and all the all the symptom, I would say the symptom beliefs that we have, and you get to the root of where our beliefs are coming from, all of us have at, at eventually a circular rooted argument that is ground really in itself. And so one of my goals that I often have as I engage with people is really to try to pull back to that layer because that's what I'm interested in. And so so that might be interesting just to ask. I'd, be, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this if you're willing to share. You know, when you think through sustainability, so we've talked about, you know, that you haven't flown a plane in a few years and even some of the family sacrifices that that's caused you to make, uh, some of the sacrifices you've had to make in your professional career related to, to these commitments that you have with sustainability. What do you think is ultimately driving uh, those those desires at root like for example one of the questions that I that I have as I'm as I've we've been able to talk and have and have conversations about these things is why is it that giving you know your family and friends more time on earth for example or elongating that is the better thing than flying a plane more for example, you know, what is the, the system in play that says that longevity in life and extending that is more significant and, and ultimately a better, more happy place to be uh, than, you know, being able to fly around and do those things? I'm just curious, like, how, how you think through that. I'm glad you asked. Not many people ask. And now I, I got to correct, not correct, but say something that's changed to me. You said sacrifices that I made in not seeing yeah. family as much as I would have or not traveling as much, for example. 
And when I intended, when I started to do those things, when I gave myself the challenge to go for a year without flying, mm-hmm. I did believe that I was sacrificing and it felt like a sacrifice at first. Looking back now, it's hard for me to say that. It doesn't okay. feel like a sacrifice. It feels like when I was a kid, I didn't like broccoli and now I love it. Yeah. It feels like that. Or a sacrifice in the sense of, I'm not a parent, but my understanding is that, I mean, I used to go party a lot when I was younger mm-hmm. and a lot of my party friends, uh, you know, I, haven't said, I haven't said it this way in a long time. If, if I asked them in the middle of a party, like, hey, would you rather party like this or get poop on your hands? They'd be like, that's a weird question. But then they became parents and they stopped being, you know, they don't, would they describe it as a sacrifice to stay home and take care of their kids, sometimes getting poop on their hands mm-hmm. instead of going out and drinking, whatever. I think that they would say, this is not a sacrifice. This is a change in life. It's a maturation. I, I prefer this. So it feels like that. I, can only, I, I don't have a, my own child, so I can't say exactly. But certainly in my life, a big part of maturation has been preferring to take responsibility for how my behavior affects others, preferring to be held accountable for these things. And that was the opposite of what, what I wanted when I was a kid. So that type of feeling is the feeling that I get. So if you say is it a sacrifice in the sense that like Michael Jordan sacrificed a lot in order to be Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. I think he would do that, you know, give him a million times to relive his life. He'd probably make the same choices. I, I don't know exactly. I'm not him. But that, you know, the few moments of winning a championship, what, six times in his life mm-hmm. is that's wor- worth it. All the other things that he didn't do. So that said, why do I make the choices that I do? It's an evolving question because at the beginning, there's certainly inside of me a feeling of aesthetic. To me, there's a beautiful world and I can look at a pile of garbage and I can play, I can do this in my head that intellectually I can see a beauty in that pile of garbage. Mm-hmm. And there's a beauty that I see when I see a sequoia or a beautiful sunset or the waves lapping at the beach. And yes, I can find a beauty in the garbage, but there's something different still. And I like, there's something intrinsically right, better for me about an earth that can sustain more life, mm-hmm. especially more human life. And you said longer life. It's really happier, healthier if, if someone lived longer, but they're miserable the whole time, I, I probably wouldn't like that so much. When I look at the projections of what could happen in the future, it would seem likely if humans continue to behave as we are behaving now, say as, we behaving, as we've been behaving for the past 50 years, mm-hmm. it seems to me that we will decrease Earth's ability to, dis- to sustain life and society. And that means that people will die early and not by their own choice, that it, there'll be how it will happen, we can't say for sure, but I don't like that, that prospect of people fighting over resources and wars happening, disease and pestilence and things like that. It's very easy if I, a lot of people take a step back and they say, you know, humans have been here for a while. We've had our time. It'll be something else later. And I think that they're not picturing what suffering means. In the, like, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. One is that I look at it through, the psychologists have done this experiment where they put someone, they, they take a, a bucket of ice cold water and they say, put your hand in the water and feel how cold it is. And they say, oh, it's really cold. And they say, okay, we, we got a stopwatch here. How long can you keep your hand in the cold water? And they'll say like, oh, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes. And they, say, and they say, okay, go. And they put their hand in like five seconds later, they pull their hand back out. And they say, why did you, you said 30 seconds. This was five seconds. I'm like, it's cold. Mm-hmm. And they, there's a name for it. I think um, empathy gaps. When you're not in a certain emotional state, it's very difficult to tell how you'll feel when you're in, or not just emotional state, but a different state. 
someone might say, a smoker might say, I'm going to quit smoking. No matter what it takes, I'm going to quit. And then the, the jitters start getting them and they're like, oh, I got to have a cigarette. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to say when you're not feeling it. When I had on the show, on the podcast, a, a, a guy, he was a, a national security expert, worked with the, not the CIA, but the State Department. He was talking about what's happening in Central America where people have to, climate change is forcing people to leave certain places because there's enough to live. And they, they, once they cross borders, they get killed, they get raped. And that's increasing. And it's easy to say, well, these things happen if you're not there. But if people can't hold their hand in cold water for more than five seconds when they thought they could, I don't even want it's, to, it's painful to imagine what it's like in situations like that that could be prevented. I want to prevent things like that from happening. I don't want people to suffer like that. Until I saw that there were alternatives that were, advent, that were preferable to mm-hmm. the current situation, I would say the cure, if the cure is worse than the disease, take the disease. But as I found in certainly my personal life, that not flying has brought, what flying brought me, not flying has brought me more of. Take adventure, take cuisine. By staying in one place and getting to know my farmers, getting to know people around me and creating adventure through, I don't know, I could tell you about some of the bike rides that I've had Mm -hmm. that have been just wonders of discovery of my environment as well as of myself that were on par with any of the trips that I took by plane in terms of the value it brought to me. But I thought that was impossible before. So I think a lot of people out there think it's impossible. Like there's this vision of like Star Trek future where everything's provided for you, materially speaking. And we just have to do what it takes to get there. And whatever science it takes, we have to press on the gas until we get to that. Mm-hmm. And anything else is risking, if we don't push on, on technological progress as much as we can, we're going to revert back to the Stone Age through, you know, the GDP not growing means we're going to lose our jobs. If we lose our jobs, hospitals close and there's no infrastructure and then people die in childbirth and, and uh, 35 becomes old age again. Mm-hmm. So this is false dichotomy, I think, that a lot of people have that I don't have anymore. I did. I certainly did. I thought fusion was the answer. I thought electric vehicles is clearly going to solve the problem, but mm-hmm. I don't think that anymore. Uh, the patterns are too clear from when we've done things like similar advances in the past. We thought it would go one way, and the unintentional side effects ended up being larger. Meanwhile, stewardship has become a huge connection to the, my connections to people around me are more meaningful, higher bandwidth in terms of more communication, Mm -hmm. uh, more fun. And I thought it was impossible. I thought we had to keep pushing on technological progress. And, you know, I have a PhD in physics. I helped launch a satellite. I'm a big fan of technological progress in the service of improving people's lives by their standards. So this is part of the answer. I don't know if I've I've directly answered it or not. That's really, that's good. So yeah, it sounds like wanting to better people's lives is is really, you know, at ground level as you start to think through this and you, your desires to see your fellow man be able to not be living in a world where there's scarce resources, where they're not having to flee their country. And you mentioned like be pillaged and attacked and assaulted and things like that. What is it that you think is different about what you believe about humanity than what it is about some of the people that would be attacking others and exploiting them that makes you want to make the world better for humanity than to take advantage of others. Like what, what is the, what's at work in, in your mind and heart 
as you think there are humans, I find them, it sounds like you'd say inherently valuable and worth defending and leveraging my life in such a way that it would serve others and allow for them to flourish. What is it about humanity in general that would want, that would cause you to want to do that for them as opposed to others who would look to exploit them? What is it that you believe about humanity that makes it worth that? By the exploiters, I'm not sure if you mean... So I would say there's a million different ways we can talk about exploiting, whether it be the people that are you know, waiting on the other side as countries run out of resources and try to cross the border and attack them, or if it's just you know someone who is extremely well-off and able to uh, live a very uh, good life at the expense of other people's sustainability. Like, let's say, I'm sure for you, as you think about some people, even in our current cultural context that have massive companies that are not helping sustainability at all, we would say that they're probably taking advantage of other people instead of actually helping them. What is it about humanity that that causes you uh, to really desire to seek uh, the good of other people as opposed to just your own? Well, I think the answer that very broadly, and then I'll talk about the first group, and then I'll talk about the second group. So very broadly, I think that we're a very social species. And so we, we our well-being is tied in with each other. I do well when you do well. And to some extent, there's some competition, but generally we have to be able to, I can't do everything by myself. In principle, I could live off in the woods and maybe just be by myself, but I think that would be pretty miserable. Mm-hmm. So I want other people to do well so that they can help me. I want to help others because I expect them to help me back. And I think that there are going to be people who cheat the system. And I'm sure there are people who look at me and think I'm cheating the system in some way that I'm not aware of. So I think that, and, and the, the emotions by which I measure the value of my life, the meaning and purpose in my life comes from my, mainly from my relationships with others. Certainly when I have an athletic achievement that I mostly did on my own, or I don't know, there's certain things that I, I achieve on my own. I certainly like to eat delicious food more than non-delicious food. That's mm-hmm. more solo. But generally it's when I lead others and they come back to me and say, like as a professor, they come back and they say, what you taught me has helped me tremendously in life. That is a tremendous feeling. Mm-hmm. And I have nieces and nephews. And when I see them grow and I see that part of me and them, that's way beyond what I can get from like playing a video game. So my relationships with humans are, especially the ones that I've developed relationships with, mm-hmm. that's really valuable to me. I mean, way, the emotions are just more intense, long lasting, deeper, complex, complex in the sense of like a, a fine wine, mm-hmm. that it, it's just a great place for me to spend my attention and resources. Mm-hmm. When we talk about groups that are climate migrants, climate uh, refugees, for example, I think it's not that one group is going to the other to like steal their food. I think it's more they, where they are, there's not enough resources for the number of people there. So they leave and they become, they leave into some other territory in hopes of something else. And so the ones in the other are, they feel invaded. And so I feel there it's probably desperation. And I don't know what it's like to look in a child's eyes and say, I can't feed you. And I imagine that will lead people to a lot of things. And I, by not being in, if I were in a desperate situation, I would probably do desperate things. And I can't blame people for doing desperate things when they're in desperate situations. But I have access to people who can influence systems. I don't quite have access. I'm trying, I mean, part of this podcast is to get access to people who are right. at, at leverage points of systems yeah. and help influence them to where they take into consideration things that they probably are not taking into consideration. I have to be open that they may point out that I'm seeing it wrong 
maybe as I meet new people, I'll learn different ways of looking at it. Maybe something I thought was terrible, maybe is regrettable, but actually better than it could have been otherwise. I'm not sure. That's what happens when something's outside my horizon. Mm-hmm. But what's motivating me is that I believe that people are not taking into consideration a lot of unintended side effects and systemic effects that when they do and they compare them to their values, they will change their behavior because they want to, not because I'm imposing it on them. Mm-hmm. I don't want to impose on others. If we disagree and I find myself learning and I find, oh, I should change my views. I have several times. I think a lot of people view me as stuck in my ways and I'm stuck in my ways in many ways. Mm-hmm. But uh, most of the ways I've come to have come through, through considerations and so forth. And I believe that there have been places where I've really changed otherwise. I'm certainly talking to you has come from, I think I held a lot closer to what I think is a more common environmentalist view. And I don't like the label. You talked about not liking labels too much. So I, I don't want to group too many people together. Yeah. But I would certainly have said, these guys are a problem. We got to fix this. Whereas now it's much more of what's going on here. Like, really, what is going on here? Who, why, what, how? And is there something that I'm missing? Is there something that they're missing? Is there something that we can... I'm not looking for common ground so much as mutual understanding, which is not necessarily the same as mutual support, or to support someone as a person, question ideas, learn. Uh, in the case of the third way to answer the question, or the third approach was um, people who are privileged, people who have a lot of stuff. And I mean, for most of the world, that's me. Yeah. I Most of the world... I think something like 90, maybe more than 90% of, the, of people I've have never flown, have no access to be able to fly. And most people I talk to think everybody flies and they think it's absolutely impossible. I mean, they say it's impossible not to fly. They think it's, this is a, a I don't know if, if they mean something different by impossible. I mean, in physics, there one, it, once was one, it was once strongly believed by the top people in physics that heavier than air flight was impossible. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's even knowing that birds and, and bees existed. They said heavier than air flight is impossible. Now people say not flying is impossible. Mm-hmm. It's bizarre. So, I mean, it's a statement about their beliefs. So I think that we've grown up believing lots of things that we haven't considered so fully. We believe that we must grow the GDP, that, that, that we, we conflate economic growth with feelings of like personal feelings of fulfillment with health and longevity and prosperity and abundance. And as long as the size of the earth is huge compared to human society or human's use of, those, of, of the earth, then that's a fair assumption. Once our size is large, our, our impact is large compared to the earth, that assumption becomes weaker and weaker. Meanwhile, stuff totally uncorrelated with those things like spending time with friends, learning to sing, you know, dancing, and there's very fulfilling things that have no, have no impact, that have nothing to do with the economy. Mm-hmm. They're not materially using things. And the, these are just wonderful things that I think we, most Americans simply dismiss as Pollyannish or nice to have, as opposed to the foundation of life. The foundation, I don't want to say life, in, in, in the foundation of what I think they would describe themselves as they experienced it as a, a wholesome, fulfilling life that they would choose over alternatives, mm-hmm. not because I told them to, but because of their personal experience of it. I guess one way I put it very quickly is apples taste better than Ben and Jerry's. If you've let your taste buds recover from the, the hyper sweetness and, and fat, the, this 
you know, what's what I'm looking for? The bliss point that is the, the term that the producers call it. Mm-hmm. It's, you don't quite get that bliss point, but actually I do. That's, I used to think of apples as the boring fruit. Like apples is like regular. Of course, mm-hmm. I'd pick a mango over apples. I probably would pick a mango over apples, but actually I can't. It's really crazy. Apples are almost euphoric to me now. Like they're really, really good. I mean, if it's bruised, maybe not so much, but yeah. I mean, I, I buy like the apple sellers at, at the farmer's market. They sell really cheap ones that are, uh, they're not as great looking. And so there's a bag of, I don't know, probably five pounds for a couple dollars. Mm-hmm. And I buy them to make vinegar because why get good apples for vinegar? And then I was eating them as I was chopping them to put in the jar. And it's like, this is really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, it, it, it gave me a feeling of, of a euphoria and, you know, mild, but still there. Mm-hmm. Not just it tasted good, it felt good. And everyone looks at, I mean, everyone, starting with most of all, my mom and dad, they look at my not flying and they're like, it's great that you sacrifice. You and Greta do this stuff. Obviously, it's terrible, but you're saying it's great because you want more people to do that. And it sucks to be misunderstood by one's own parents, especially about something that's very important. Mm-hmm. But the rare, so far rare, but growing number of people who choose to do what at the beginning looks like sacrifice, but then turns out not to be sacrifice is growing. And, and with them, it's the understanding is great. It, it feels great to, for when someone says, I did that thing too. Oh, wow. I am such a liberating feeling. That was a long answer. No, it's good. It's really helpful to hear because I love having these kind of conversations with people because I think at root, there's a sense in which every one of us is hedonistic, meaning we do things because we want pleasure, whatever that is, satisfaction, and not just physical, you know, I'm not just talking like erotic or taste bud kind of pleasure. We want to feel contentment and satisfaction with what we're doing at, at root. I would say that like just about everyone you talk to, you ask, why do you do this? Well, because it it brings about contentment. It brings about satisfaction. Even someone that's completely addicted to Ben and Jerry's, they're doing that because it brings pleasure. Like that, there's part, like that's one of the reasons they're drawn to it. And I think from a, from a Christian worldview, as I hear you saying these things, you know, I, I said earlier, what I believe to be true, I believe to be objectively true because I believe we're all living in the world that God has made. I don't believe this is just somehow like true because, because I, I believe it, I believe it's objectively. And what I think, what, what the Bible puts forward and what I think comes about out of it is that God has created the world in such a way that when it is used to the way that he's intended it, it brings about blessing and joy. And when it, it, when it doesn't, it doesn't lead to, to lasting joy. He has built it that way. And one of the things the Bible constantly is talking about is idolatry in, in many different ways. Like it points out things like gluttony as a sin. Most people think, just as an example, most people think that when the Bible talks about gluttony being a sin, it means, well, just don't eat a lot. But it's more than that. With the Bible, when it talks about gluttony, it's having an overwhelming desire that you are not training that just has your mind always set on food or drink or wanting to have that satisfied. And so when we think about sustainability and like and things like that related to things like food, I mean, we as an American culture are way more gluttonous than any of us realize. We we are owned by our appetites. The Bible has a, a, one of my favorite phrases in the book of Philippians. Paul says regarding people who are persecuting him, that their God is their belly. And uh, I really think a lot, for a lot of people, their God is their belly. 
they live their life where they don't eat food to live. They're living to eat. They're living to enjoy like that. Their life cycles around getting sustenance every day instead of thinking, how can food and drink, how can that stuff fuel my work and my labor and the things that I'm interested in my hobbies? Instead, it's everything revolves around food. And I think one of the, one of the things when you want to change people's mind and think about sustainability and other things is to get at, as from a Christian perspective, we have to get at idolatry and the dangers of it and what it does. It changes because our bodies are made in such a way by God that when we're taking of food and we're eating, whether it be bad or sugary food, that not only is it bad for us, but it actually starts corrupting what we want so that our body starts craving that which it shouldn't. It's very addictive. And what's scary is seeing how a lot of people can't separate what they see as, I need this thing, so they think it's good. And if you're to come along and tell them there's a better option, it sounds like they're making a sacrifice when in reality, they're just giving up the thing that's been killing them. And trying to train people to see that long-term is honestly a lot of pastoral ministry. And it's way more than just food sustainability. For me, it's like when I think about being a pastor in a church and counseling people, it's related to a whole host of things. Like when I, whether I'm talking to younger people who are deeply entrenched in pornography or younger people who are deeply entrenched in if it be food addictions or smartphone addiction or whatever, all these addictions are ways that we've been training our bodies to not serve and glorify God and to live and to serve others well. It becomes a self-love. It becomes all about how do I get as much pleasure out of this life as I can before I die? And that that worldview is sad because it seems to assume that what makes me happy and what brings me pleasure is what I'm going to do till I die. And it sadly misunderstands that ultimately the way the Bible teaches that joy is ultimately and only had when we live for God, because it is made to terminate in him. If we put all of our hope in the things of this world, the things of this life, we can't take any of it with us. It's not going to go like when we die, it doesn't matter if you have storehouses with lots of things in them. It doesn't matter if you've acquired a lot of wealth. It does, who cares in, in the end? But a life that truly matters from a Christian worldview is one of living for the glory of God. And one of the ways that God calls us to live from is interesting. If you read the, the New Testament and the scriptures, it's like 90 sometimes the word is used, uh, the phrase one another. It's talking about how we're to live with one another. And you talked about communal instincts. And I believe from the Christian worldview, God has created us to do that, that he's created us for community to live with each other and to serve each other. And I think that the human longing that I think is rightly that you rightly have to want to see other humans flourish is something that is put in your conscience by God, that that is that scripturally speaking, that he has um, made us to want to do that because he has made humans, the Bible says, in his image meaning we reflect him so we're inherently valuable. So when, when we want to serve other humans, it's not just because, well, that's an evolutionary product that looks like me, so I guess we should get along together. But there's actually a deeply sacred thing that's happening. When you, when you look into the eyes of another human, you're looking into someone who is made in the image of God and reflects his glory in a profound sense. And that sacredness calls me to love other people well. It, you know, it, it inspires me to want to live in such a way that they would be blessed. So like 
Philippians chapter two, verse three is one of my favorite verses in the scripture. It's one of the most convicting verses because as, as someone who is sinful and, and, and prone to selfishness, this is hard to hear, but he says to not look out for your own interests only, but to count yourself uh, less than others. It's a great print. When you live your life and you, and you think, how can I serve other people? It's a great life. Like I, I'm married, I've been married for a year and a half. And that verse, I'm like having to remind myself all the time, just a little like living. When I think of how to serve my wife well throughout the day, I'm constantly telling myself, it's not just about me. And uh, I want to affirm what you're saying in the sense of we need more people. The world needs more people who are not just thinking, how do I get what I want out of this life? But how do I how do I serve other people well? But I believe my take on it is that apart from God, if you untether that from God, if you untether that from scripture, it becomes a convoluted mess down the road. And so my um, that's why when we've talked before, I've encouraged like reading through scripture and see and, and yourself and just seeing that because ultimately in this life, if we're simply seeking to serve others well as a goal in and of itself, it becomes an endless rat race because if the other person doesn't receive it or if they or if they are not receiving it the way we would want, it can be very difficult to deal with. But if you're living with the lens that my standard is God is calling me to do this, that God is the reason that I'm doing this, then it's not affected by how man could or could not receive it or even the circumstances that I'm that I'm living in. So I am grateful that in this life, uh, the the joy of the gospel, knowing knowing Christ as Lord and living for the glory of God, that what how other humans react to decisions I make is not my ultimate standard, and that gives great freedom to to think about these things in such a way where we're not like you've mentioned when we've had previous conversations that a lot of times people come in with such heat and and and, and opinions, and if you're and if you don't have something apart from just wanting to please man or have other people like you or be, be okay with you, uh, you're not going to be able to have your stand on your own principles. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. So much to follow up there. And the gluttony part resonates with uh, something that I've been exploring a lot especially because Washington Square Park around the corner for me has been filling up with uh, heroin and crack users. There's always been people using cannabis, but now it's, and, and I've been noticing the difference between the weed dealers and the crack and heroin users is that the weed dealers are, you know, they're business people. They want, they want people to come and, and buy from them. So they want to look presentable to some degree. Whereas the crack and heroin users, I, presu- I don't really know exactly what, I mean, I see syringes and, and mm-hmm. like they go through a lot of lighters, which I think means they're cooking stuff, but I don't really know. I mean, I've seen people injecting. It's really a shock to the system. It is. For, I mean, for, like I, it's very rare that in life I've just like winced while I'm just walking because I just didn't expect to see the, it going in the skin. And, t- yeah. and, and there's a feeling that I think is, at a, I'm not an addiction specialist. It's not something I've studied a lot. Yeah. But I think there's a, there's a 
say you have there's five cookies on the table and you say, I'm going to have two cookies. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to have those, the other three. Yeah. You have two. And then when you go for the other three, the feeling that we have, that emotion, there, it's a very slippery emotion because like, like trying to catch a fish in water with your bare hands, mm-hmm. it sneaks away from you because you just don't like that feeling. But I think when we look inside, there's a feeling among others of it's better for me not to, to eat the other three, but it's discounting the future. To, uh, economists would say it's discounting the future, but I think what we feel is like, it's actually be- my pleasure right now is so much more valuable than whatever I was whatever I said before, it was more valuable. Actually, my pleasure is more valuable. The feeling that I'll get from that. But when I really dwell, focus and meditate on that, on what, is, what is that feeling there? Mm-hmm. It's hopelessness. Yeah. It's, it's giving up. And I was just talking about this with Jonathan yesterday, Jonathan Hardesty, because we're working on making an art piece together. Who knows if, if anything will come of it? One of the things we're focusing on is that emotion. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was like, hopelessness. And he was like, oh, that's all over art. Yeah. But most of the time, it's some sort of Kafka type thing where it's like the system is oppressing you. Yeah. This is our choice. Yeah. This is something internal and we don't like it specifically because we face our own responsibility. And as I was talking about, I was like, that's gluttony. I mean, it's not, I don't want to overlap it too much, but it's like, that's the heart of, of, I think what you were saying. Yeah. And one of the things that has led to my approaching, for whatever reasons I approached evangelicals and Christians at first, something that I've deeply valued is that when I talk about and when I experience stewardship, the emotions that I feel are ones that you've talked about. Glory is a big one. And stewardship, that's not an emotion, but there's a feeling of oneness and camaraderie that when I go to an event that's environmentalist, I feel anger, frustration, and holier than thou, and an intent to win. And those emotions don't fit with me. I'm very uncomfortable. I can't work with them in many ways. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying there's plenty of things that I like about what they, what they say. And I mean, plenty of them, like, we get together and when, we expl- when we're not trying to win, but we're actually like, I don't know, cooking together, then it's awesome. Yeah. But the, the stewardship and the, and the glory and the selflessness and the, um, the beauty, mm-hmm. like the, I, this is on everyone, I think, when we really get it, when we separate ourselves from the here and now, and we just when we really allow ourselves to like, what's, what's important? Like, like just the, the awe-inspiring earth yeah. is just incredible and everything in it. Yeah. But I think when I talk to evangelicals and religious people of many stripes, about acting in stewardship, it's for a greater glory. It's for this, it's this gift that we want everyone to have. And it's not, if it was given to all of us and I use up more than my share, that wasn't mine to use mm-hmm. when it was a gift from someone to someone else. And I like got in the middle of that. That yeah. doesn't seem so. Can I say something to that? Uh, yeah, please. One thing you're saying that, that resonates well. And what I, what I love is in, the, in Psalms chapter 19 in the Bible is one of my favorite chapters because in there, he starts out by saying that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. There's a way and there, there's a sense in which when you see the beauty of the world, the grandeur of what's around you, it takes your breath away when you think about 
how amazing the place we live is, how perfectly set it up it is for humans to live on. And what what's going on there, there's a there's a theologian I really enjoy. And he talks about when you go, for example, to like, let's say you go to the Grand Canyon and you look over the Grand Canyon. He says there's almost this like you lose your breath because you feel small, but in feeling small, you're tasting glory because you're seeing that it's more than you. And I think humans, when you, when you have a worldview that everything's about me, that I, that my life is about getting my needs, you are a small person. But when you step back and you realize the size of the universe, how many other people are around you, and you see the greater glory you mentioned, that there is a God who is behind it all, it starts to click in such a way that in that same Psalms chapter nine, I mentioned as the psalmist writes, it's a hymn. So it's a song, it's a praise. He's like sitting out like the heavens declare the glory of God. He says about how the sun comes out and it runs around the earth like a man on a track running a race. And he, and he has all these ideas that he's, he's operating on. But then what's amazing, he has this line where he says that the law of the Lord, meaning that the standard or the, the principles that the Lord gives us to live by, he says, are sweeter than honeycomb and richer than fine gold. And what I love what he's doing there is he's reminding us and he's teaching us and we're learning from God's word there that the things of this world, so I think the things you're, you taste an apple and it starts to get to you when it feels euphoric because you've retrained your taste buds. I believe that God is giving gifts like that as an analogy to point us to something even more than that. It's greater than that. It's to, it's, it elevates and escalates from there to him so that what I think you're touching into is something that's so profound about our humanity in that there's a paradox that self-control or self-discipline is the pathway to freedom. Most people don't see that. That's, but that the Bible teaches us that the Bible teaches us that it is self-controlled people that are free. Let me, let me give an example. So well, let's just take someone like John Hardesty, for example, he can sit down and draw a picture in a very short time that just blows like someone like me. Like, I don't know how you do that. Like, it's just, it's mind blowing how skilled it is, but that freedom that he has to do that kind of skilled work is the result of years of training and discipline and hard work. You had mentioned, like, I remember reading on your website, like you had swum, swam against across the Hudson. Is that right? Yeah. Twice. Yeah. Yeah. Twice. It, that didn't happen in a day, but you have that freedom. You can experience the the joy of doing that through the discipline of committing to. Di- I'm sure there was times where, as you're practicing that kind of swimming, where in the moment it felt like death. Uh, it felt like you are pushing yourself to the breaking point. But then that discipline allows you to have the freedom to do that. I think of musician friends I have who well, I have this uh, one friend who is just so gifted on the guitar and you can just sit there and riff in ways that just, it sounds so great. And I think that a lot of times we wrongly think as humans, man, I wish that I could just grab a guitar and do that. But we need to understand that people like that are doing that as a result of discipline. And I think there's a corollary between what I'm saying here in principle and how we think about things like sustainability, that if we want that kind of freedom, if we want the joy of seeing other people being served well, of being free from addictions and things like that, we need to have our minds changed to see that abstaining from things is worth whatever sacrifice it is to get there. And as you already mentioned, to people to see that sacrifice of giving yourself is what brings freedom. And that, again, I think that that, that reality is grounded in the fact that God has created a world 
to work in such a way where the Bible teaches that, that Jesus would come into the world and freely give himself as a sacrifice for the sins of man so that we could be forgiven. What's amazing is in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, we're taught that the way that Jesus was able to go to the cross, and it says that he thought lightly of the shame of being hung, you know, bloodied, bruised, humiliated on a cross, that he was able to think lightly of that in the moment. It says, because for the joy that was set before him, he could endure it. And so in this life, when we think about sacrifice and giving ourselves for others and living, if we don't have a future joy, or if we don't have a view of what the future is, that is better than what currently is, we'll never get off the ground. And so I want to say, ultimately, as a Christian, I see the ultimate display of that and the foundation of every decision I'm making is flowing directly out of the fact that Jesus gave himself freely for me and now I can for other people. I think what you're arguing and what friends that resonate with me that don't have that worldview, you are tasting of the corollary. And I want to call people to the greater joy that is underneath, but I'm glad that we can at least resonate, like that God has built a world where we can resonate on those things, even without agreement or unity on the deepest things uh, that can be had. So we have a lot of open threads and I propose that we pick up next time. I think we're a bit over an hour. Okay. Would you be game to, to continue this conversation in a future episode? Oh, I'd be happy to. Yeah. Okay. So I'd want to wrap up with like something to tie it all together in a bow, but I, yeah, yeah. I, I propose the bow be that we'll pick up here next time. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to do that. All right, Michael, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.